This is Studio Two, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erick. And I'm Cherry Gregg. The scientists who paved the way for the most effective coronavirus vaccines won the Nobel Prize in Medicine last week. And they both live in our region. Hmm. University of Pennsylvania's Catalin Caraco and Drew Weissman. Their work saved millions of lives, Avi, and is leading to incredible innovations in medicine. And Dr. Drew Weissman is going to join us later in the hour to talk about the work that led to the award and the future of vaccines. If you have questions for him about the vaccines or COVID, call us. The number is 888-477-9499. Or you can email us at studio2 at whyy.org. That's pretty cool. Yeah, or maybe you just want to say... I spoke to a Nobel laureate. Uh, that would be pretty cool, too. That's a reason to call. We get to say that. 888-477-9499, Studio 2 at WHYY.org. Later in the show, we're going to talk with local filmmaker T. Gray Hill about his new docu-series investigating the 2018 fatal stabbing of real estate developer Sean Skellinger by Michael White. He's going to join us to talk about the complexities of this high-profile case. And in a few minutes, before we get to all of that, we're going to talk about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s independent bid mm. for the presidency, which he announced yesterday just down the street at a rally on Independence Mall. What will it mean for the 2024 race? We will talk with Chris Brenton, political imp- reporter for The Inquirer. But first, Cherry, let's talk about some headlines. Yeah, and you heard about it just now and NPR News. This is day four of the war in Israel following that attack by Hamas and Monday, there was a large gathering of about a thousand people in Wynwood, just outside of Philly. It was one of the largest demonstrations locally since that initial attack. Now, many local officials stood in solidarity with Israel, including Governor Josh Shapiro, who was there at the rally, which was organized by the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia to both show support and to condemn the attack. Here's what he had to say in part. This is a moment not to retreat from who we are, but to embrace who we are. There was also a pro-Palestine rally in Philadelphia on Sunday. A couple hundred people were there. The Philadelphia region, Avi, has a very large Jewish population. You know that, and we all know that. Many families with ties to Israel. There's a smaller Palestinian population. Now, the video surfacing just takes your breath away. It's believed about uh, roughly 150 Israeli hostages are being held, including older people and children. Um, The militants have uh, threatened to execute hostages if Israel strikes uh, hit Palestinian Palestinian civilians in Gaza without warning. The death toll of Israelis over 1,000 in Gaza, over 700, with many more injured. And we do plan to have more on this on the program tomorrow. That is our note here at Studio 2 want to move us along now to our, our second story. And I have to say, I am surprised that this is the first time mm-hmm. I'm hearing of this because it's been going on for a dozen years and now it's finally complete. The largest Hindu temple outside of India was just inaugurated this week in central New Jersey, just outside of Trenton. Who knew? I, I did not know, which mm-hmm. I was shocked by. It is associated with a, a Hindu denomination that is often abbreviated as BAPS. Again, I said 12 years, a dozen years. It took 12 years of work, 12,500 volunteers from around the world to build what, what I got to say is a stunning 
mm-hmm. facility. Um, 90,000. I mean, the, usually you don't do numbers on the radio. Yeah. But I think they work here. 90,000 square feet. Um, two million cubic feet of stone. I believe the property is 185 acres, second largest Hindu temple outside of India, now in central Jersey. Yeah, 10,000 statues. That's a There's lot of number. statues, That's man. a lot of statues. But I, I want to mention that, you know, um, this was chosen because, you know, the tri-state area have, has a very large Hindu population. Um, and the new temple will be easily accessible. Um, but there was a little bit of controversy there was, a yes. couple of years ago. There was a civil rights lawsuit where workers who claimed they were lured from India to work on this temple. Mm-hmm. They claimed that they faced poor working conditions, forced labor, caste discrimination. And some said they only were paid one hundred ninety dollars. Oh, sorry, a dollar and ninety cents. That's a big difference. Yeah, an hour, an hour um, to work. But 12 of the 19 plaintiffs have uh retracted their allegations um and, but, and then the, the, yeah. the, the sort of the response yeah. uh, from the religious organization which says it's cooperating with the investigation is that the this is a misinterpretation of religious volunteerism it is it is, it is. yeah and because and and by the way you mentioned more than twelve thousand volunteers um yeah and it, but it will be open to the public on the 18th People coming from all over the country right now to right. check out this temple, it is which also, I think is pretty, pretty cool. It is also a testament yeah, to the geographic wonder that is central Jersey. Because it, this site was chosen in part because like, you could fly to Philadelphia. Yeah. You could fly to New York. You could even fly to D.C. and get here pretty easily. Central Jersey is the center of the world. In it the is. I, ne- I got to mention that um, this reminds me of when the big Mormon temple here in Philadelphia yeah. was built. There was buzz, international buzz, kind of like this, but this one is even bigger. So You're going to get me on attention about the Mormon temple. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we grew up in the D.C. area, yeah. and the Mormon temple in the D.C. area is so much bigger that I was I was kind of amused by the buzz around the one here in Philadelphia because the one in DC looks like the Wizard of yes, Oz. It's like it really does. grand, it does. whatever. That we're on it. We're on a temple tangent. Yes, now. but I'm just saying that that's it's lots of buzz, and <laughs> I, I want to get a sneak peek. Hopefully, folks will be invited in. And so, um, you remember, Avi? We talked to a flag expert just a few days How ago. Could I forget it was on Thursday. Um, I now, said something kind of controversial. I got a little pushback. I said the Philadelphia flag you did. stinks. And I, I got some on, agree, but, on air and off air. I got some pushback. But I think I've been vindicated. I got your back. Well, apparently, and a lot of people <laughs> have your back. Because me. now some members of Philadelphia City Council, they're considering a proposal to change the city's flag design. And, of course, this flag design that we're talking about that you said stinks. Um <laughs> It has been in use since 1895. It's blue, has yellow stripes with the Just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean you should keep doing it. I know. The colors are a nod to the Swedish colony that occupied the Delaware Valley before William Penn founded his in 1682. Now, council members Mike Driscoll and Jim Herity, they introduced this resolution Thursday to create a task force to talk about it. To me, it's all about do people fly the flag and do they recognize the flag? A flag is working when people see it as a symbol of their place. And we, we I'll go back to D.C. again. I have a D.C. thing today. Yeah. And, and to be fair, it's a slightly different situation because D.C. is, you know, kind of almost a like a state. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. but, but people fly the D.C. flag. You know, in Maryland, people fly the flag. In Chicago, people fly the city flag. This one, in my opinion, is too complicated for people to really relate to it. 
Yeah, it, and it's true. I mean, and and I I can't say I'm a big fan of it. Um, I did have to cover it as a reporter. I covered a couple of stories related to this flag, but I'm not a big fan of it. But I have to say, the Inquirer actually asked its readers to design a new flag, and they received 1,800 submissions. So people kind of like really care yeah. about this. One of the submissions I really liked. Which one? It had um, it kept the colors, but it added a red Liberty Bell. With the crack That's in That's nice. It. And I kind of, I feel like the Liberty Bell is more symbolic of Philly these days. I think it is. And I liked one that had, I think it was the original colors, but it had a quill mm. in the middle. I don't know why I liked it, because I don't know why a quill would symbolize Philadelphia. Yeah. I think it just looked cool. Yeah. Well, you know what? Coolness matters. Coolness does matter. Um, Thank you for stating that. <laughs> you know what's not cool? When your neighbors snoop on you. Oh, yeah. Uh, a new survey... We're, I'm not even going to call it a study because let's be honest, this was not a study. One of, <laughs> some Loose company wants us to say their name. So they did a quote unquote study mm-hmm. um, of which states have the nosiest neighbors in Pennsylvania ranks third among 50 based on this survey that this company did. Um, I guess I should say their name. All Star Home. Um, I, I, I can't imagine this is true, but uh, maybe do you think it's true that Pennsylvania could be the third nosiest State? I don't know. I mean, I've lived I lived in Philly for 15 years, and um, in Philly, that Philadelphia has one of the least nosiest neighbors. Right. So um, that was what was odd. Yeah. It was just yeah. why I don't trust this. So Philadelphia, which a lot of people in Pennsylvania live in Philadelphia, was the third least nosy city. But somehow mm-hmm. Pennsylvania was the third most nosy state, which means the rest Those of Pennsylvania. People, man. <laughs> It's to be very nosy. Those people in the so, middle of the state. <laughs> something's not lighted up. But um, no, mm-hmm. I, 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 you said, what were we going to say about Philly? Go ahead. I was going to say South Philly. I, li- I think it depends on the neighborhood. When mm-hmm. I lived in South Philly, my neighbors, they shout out to the folks <laughs> in South Philly, were very nosy. But when I lived in Fairmount, I, you know, I really wanted a neighbor to sit on the stoop with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, nosy's kinda... not always bad. I live in South Philly currently and have for a while. And my neighbors have not been nosy. It's very live and let live on my block. So mm. I don't know. Maybe that's just a street by street thing. Yeah, maybe it is. Neighborhood by neighborhood. Speaking so, of our neighborhood. Yeah. Guess who was yesterday. here yesterday? Robert Kennedy Jr. announced his bid for the presidency as an independent candidate right here on Independence Mall yesterday. It sparked speculation about the potential impact of his campaign on the 2024 presidential election. And here to talk more about it is Chris Brennan. He's a political reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Chris, welcome to Studio Two. Happy to be here. All right, Chris, uh, this announcement yesterday in Philadelphia, one of the most recognizable parts of Philadelphia, uh, is that signaling to you anything about what the Kennedy campaign is hoping to achieve over the next year or so? Yeah, he wanted Independence Hall as a backdrop for his announcement uh, because he's really hitting hard at this theme of voters declaring independence from the two-party system. Uh, He had a lot to say about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and his disillusionment with both and how they operate in the country and how they pit voters against each other. And so the location was very much... Um, chosen for that reason. And in his speech yesterday, Kennedy said his switch to independent will upset his own party. Here's a clip of what he had to say. The Democrats are frightened that I'm going to spoil the election for President Biden. And and the Republicans are frightened that I'm going to spoil it for President Trump. 
the truth is they're both right. Uh, Chris, your reaction to that is what will his switch to independent, how will it impact 2024's election? So there's the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. version of this, and then there's the conventional wisdom on this. His version is that he's actually a competitive candidate who can defeat both Trump and Biden. The conventional wisdom is that he can't get close to that, but that his candidacy can pull votes from either Trump or Biden in a way that could influence the outcome of the 2024 presidential election. Do you buy that, though, Chris? I mean, so I'll I'll read the margins of recent Pennsylvania elections here in Pennsylvania. Biden carried the state by about 80,000 votes. Uh, Trump carried it by about 40,000 votes four years earlier. Um, So he'd need to pull some votes um, from one camp or another in the range of, you would think, 50,000 to really have an impact on who wins Pennsylvania. Do you think he's capable of that? So when you say that, Democrats immediately start thinking about Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate for president in 2016, Mm -hmm. who pulled just enough votes that year um, to cover the margin of difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So it is possible uh, in a state like Pennsylvania that an independent candidate like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could influence the margins one way or the other. The of question now is, who does he draw from? Right. And I, I wanted to get you on that, too. But also, you have to factor in, right, whether those Jill Stein voters and maybe the coming Kennedy voters would have voted otherwise. What do you think about that question? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. Um, third party candidates uh, tend to draw out some voters who otherwise would stay away from the polls because they're unhappy with the choices of the two dominant political parties. Um uh, so, but that can also change the margins, uh, you know, if, if voters come out who would have stayed home. I, I mean, uh, Chris, we focus so much on this two party uh, system, you know, Republicans, Democrats. I want to I want to just play a clip of what Kennedy had to say yesterday and what he calls a broken and corrupt two party system. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Here's what he had to say. Who is the liberal now and who's the conservative? Who is the left? Who is the right? These labels make less and less sense. And out of habit, we still group ourselves around the empty husks of those old alignments and threadbare ideologies. But now that habit is breaking down. I mean, uh, Chris, a lot of folks have said, you know, this system that we have leaves a lot of folks out. You know, in Pennsylvania, you're kind of if you're an independent, you're kind of shut out of the primary for the most part. Um, Does he have a point here? Yeah, so I don't think he's talking so much about independent voters there, although, I mean, there there is a push right now to get um, um, uh, in the uh, General Assembly to allow independents to vote in primaries, which would increase participation amongst the voter base. But I think what he's really talking about there is something he, he and other people call the uniparty, which is the idea that um, Democrats and Republicans uh, at least – um, in the center part of both con- uh, both uh, political parties, that they um, they share a lot of ideas and ideologies and policies, uh, and so uh, you know he was essentially um, trying to draw a distinction that 
these things that are that have traditionally drawn distinctions between uh, the two parties are have less distinction now that that they are more likely, uh, even though we hear a lot about the loudest voices on the far left and the far right of the political spectrum, that there's actually a big clump of politicians in the center, both Democratic and Republican, that are pulling in the same direction. So how was he doing as a Democratic candidate? I mean, is this sort of just he knew that he couldn't get, you know, the nomination, and so this is a way to keep him in the fight? So in the run-up to his big announcement yesterday, he had been complaining that the so-called system, the Democratic primary, was, he said, rigged against him. But he was only polling at about 14 to 15 percent in the Democratic Party, um, uh, according to a compilation of polls put together by the uh, web- website Real Clear Politics, uh, which does a pretty good job of pulling together a lot of different polls. Uh, Trump at the same time was around 61, 62 percent, which isn't great, but is much better than 14 or 15 percent. So, and I, th- I think you mean Biden there, right? Right, Chris. I'm, I'm sorry, Biden yeah. uh, was uh, was at uh, 61 to 62 percent. Uh, there was a Reuters Ipsos poll that came out last week that looked at general election matches matchups, uh, and in that um, in that poll. Kennedy was still right around 14%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, uh, as we wrap up, Chris, just want to bring in an email real quick from Jay who says uh, that Republican donors have given millions to RFK Jr. I don't have the financial sheets in front of me, mm-hmm. but just something to probably to watch out for uh, as we sort of question where will RFK Jr. pull votes from? You have to imagine that the the money might tell you at least what the pundits think about that question. We have to go now, though. Chris, thank you so much uh, for your time. That is Chris Brandon, political reporter for The Inquirer. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, Nobel laureate Dr. Drew Weissman is in the studio to talk about his pioneering work in mRNA that led to the development of COVID-19 vaccine. Stick with us. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfmaner. Welcome back, everybody. Last week, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was announced, and you may have heard that the two prize winners hail from our region. Dr. Catalin Carrico and Dr. Drew Weissman. Carrico and Weissman won for their discoveries around messenger RNA, often abbreviated as mRNA. This led to the speedy development of COVID-19 vaccines used by Pfizer and Moderna, vaccines that have, and this is not hyperbole, saved millions of lives, Cherry. And we are extremely honored to have one of the Nobel laureates sitting in the studio with us now, Dr. Drew Weissman. Roberts Family Fellow of Vaccine Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Congratulations to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. And you can call with your questions about the mRNA technology, the vaccines, and COVID-19, and just speak with a Nobel Prize winner by calling at 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy. Org. Um, so, Drew, you got the call um, about winning the Nobel Prize and you didn't believe it. 
please tell us the story of how you realized this this was not a hoax. So actually, Katie got the call at 4 a.m. In theory, the call is supposed to come at 5.30. So she was a little surprised by that. And they told her that we had won. But they also told her they didn't have a good number for me. And could she give it to them? So she did. And then she texted me and, and we started talking. And I, I didn't receive a call. And we both said, this sounds like a prank. Mm. Uh, so we, we waited, couldn't go back to sleep, of course. And at 5.30, I got a call. I, I still didn't completely believe it. And we watched the website for the the uh, video. Uh, and then we believed it. And after you believed it, you called your parents. And let's play, <laughs> let's play that clip as well. I won the Nobel Prize. So young, the, uh, that clip has gone somewhat viral. Um, no pun intended, by the way. Um, but uh, Dr. Weissman, tell us a little bit about you, your your background, your folks. Uh, I think you can hear in your mom's voice a little mm-hmm. bit. You're from New England. Um, tell us a little bit about how you came to science. So I, I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, and my father is an engineer. My mother's a dental hygienist, and through you know, growing up, I, my father and I always did projects together, mm-hmm. always explored, always asked questions and, and seeked answers. And then when I started high school, I became interested in basic science research. Uh, when I went to college, I spent summers doing research and ended up doing a master's degree at Brandeis University uh, before going to med school and studying and doing research, doing a MD-PhD. Did it feel at all, I don't know if risky is the right word, but you could pursue, I guess, a more, a more standard MD path in practice or something like that, or you can go into the scientific research world. Did one of those paths seem safer or riskier to you? How did you evaluate that you wanted to go in the world of sort of research science? It wasn't really risk. It was more just interest. Yeah. And I, I always get in trouble for saying this, but <laughs> Please through, <do> my, then. <laughs> through my medical training, I, I just found taking care of patients mm. to not be fulfilling Yeah, and, and found research much more stimulating where I could sit down, think of a new idea, and test it. And then if it didn't work, use that to, to make the idea better. Hmm. Yeah. And some of your earlier work um, was around HIV, a treatment for HIV and AIDS. Um, tell us about that work and sort of how it led to this this place that you are now. Yeah. So I, I worked in Tony Fauci's lab at the NIH, and he was studying HIV pathogenesis. And when I got there, I became interested in a brand new type of cell that had just been described. It's called a dendritic cell. What it does is it it goes around the body and collects pathogens, collects foreign, and then takes it to a lymph node 
where it stimulates our immune system mm. to recognize it and respond to it. So I, I became very interested in, and did a lot of studies. When I came to Penn, my idea was that it was the obvious target for a vaccine. Mm. So I, I collected all the different ways of delivering pathogens, antigens to dendritic cells and had everyone except RNA. Yeah. And that's where I, I ran into Katie Carrico at the copy machine. At the and copy machine. This the fateful me. <laughs> meeting. We were talking about how this yes. is sort of, I guess, indicative of workplace culture before people went remote. Um, the idea that you could run into someone that you maybe you weren't working with directly mm-hmm. and just have a chance interaction in one of those liminal moments and spaces and it could spark something. Um, reflect on that. Um, especially, I think, in, in, in light of the fact that people might have fewer of those interactions. Now. No, it, it, exactly. I mean, w- w- when I talk to young audiences, high school kids, I have to explain to them what a copy machine is because <laughs> that they've never seen one and never used one. But, we don't use uh, it much I'm, either, I'll be I'm honest. just dating myself there. Uh, no, I mean, I, I guess in the old days, it was also we, we, you, know, you meet over the coffee machine yep. or, or over the fridge and the you – know, but, but all of those interactions are incredibly important. I just moved my lab at Penn, and we're in now what's known as open lab space, which means is that there's four investigators all in the same big room where hmm. they, they each have their own benches, but everything is open. So it allows communication and interaction between all of the people. Yeah. And that's what stimulates new ideas, new directions, new collaborations. Those informal moments, those crossover moments. That's so interesting. And when you both started working together, when and, and because it seems like the work um, that she was doing was like the missing piece. But when you started working together, it took several years before someone caught on. What what was the moment that you said, we got something? And, and by the way, I, I read that some of the journals didn't even want to <laughs> publish this. It, it took almost 13 years before anybody paid attention, hmm. uh, w- which was a very long time. We, we knew once we started working together that RNA would someday be incredibly important and would be a useful drug. We both thought we would be dead by the time that happened. Hmm. So COVID-19 brought that out. But we saw the potential, and that's why we never gave up. Even though we couldn't get grants, we couldn't publish papers, nobody was interested in what we were doing, we saw the potential. We knew that once the, all the problems were solved, it would make a great vaccine, a great gene therapy, and, and an interesting therapeutic platform. We are speaking with Dr. Drew Weissman, Roberts Family Fellow of Vaccine Research at the University of Pennsylvania and a very recently minted Nobel laureate. Um, if you want to join the conversation, please do 888-477-9499, or you can email studio2 at org. A big part of your story is the fact that for a while you were on the fringes of the scientific community, not drawing a lot of attention or research dollars. And I'm curious, as you reflect back on that now, is that sort of the the bureaucracy of science and funding working as it should, where the money goes to the proven concepts in bulk? Or does your story highlight a flaw in how money is allocated 
in, within the science, scientific community? Yeah, I, I don't think there's a good answer to that. The, the, the issue is they saw Katie and my, my, our ideas as a little wild uh, and likely not to work. Yep. We were, I guess the word is lucky, although I'm not sure that's the right word, that it did work. But the, there was no way to predict 15, 20, 25 years ago that it would work. And you don't want funders throwing money at crazy ideas mm-hmm. that will never develop into anything because that money is lost. And you even yourself thought it would not develop for many, many more decades. Yeah, no, exactly. So yeah. I, I don't know if there's a solution for how you fund these ideas and how you know what's good and what's not good. Yeah. And then, of course, the pandemic hit in 2020, the coronavirus, uh, and you and your partner, you were in place to sort of help with that. Um, what was that time like when you realized that the work that you all had been doing for decades was something that could help millions and millions and millions of people? So what people don't understand is that we had already developed the RNA LNP vaccine platform. We published it in 2017 for Zika. We had been working on it for years before then. It had been in clinical trials for influenza. This was not a brand new idea that somebody said, oh, let's throw RNA at the vaccine. It was an established platform that worked Mm -hmm. really well. So Moderna and BioNTech both had licensed the technology. And when the minute they had the sequence, they started making the Mm -hmm. RNA vaccines. And the reaction, though, from the public was, this can't be true. Like, they had no idea. They thought this was something that came about yeah. overnight, yeah. but this had been developed for many years and, and, and so, sort of waiting. Yeah, so I, I, I criticize myself and scientists for not being upfront and, and, and telling people from the very beginning, this is established technology. Yeah. The first time RNA was in a patient was around 1995. This is not invented in 10 months. Be nervous. Yeah. And that became, it became an attack point for anti-vaxxers. I mean, this thing, because people hadn't really heard of it in this application, they were used to vaccines being developed in a different way, you know, a little bit of the, the virus being injected. They, it became like a public messaging weakness. Mm. And you're reflecting on that now, and I hear you. What do you think, whether it's mRNA or something else that we haven't discovered yet, what do you think science needs to do differently? Because I don't want to, I don't want to put the onus on you, right? Because the other, the other you side is being, is being the dishonest. Yeah. The other side is being dishonest, but you know that there's going to be dishonesty whenever the next technology comes around. What do you think science, the scientific community can do to combat that preemptively? So we've put together a, a consortium at Penn that includes people like Paul Offit and mm-hmm. Ayla Stanford and others who are experts in the vaccine hesitancy field. And, and our general ideas are there's many different groups that have vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Each group is going to need a separate message. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out what are the messages for each group, and then how do we get them out? How do we get them distributed to state, local, 
uh, federal and worldwide governments to, to try and blunt the next time new technology comes out. Yeah, I, I want to just talk about the impact of your of, of the technology now when you combine it with the coronavirus um, um, vaccine. And you talk about that it, millions and millions of people. And I want to bring in this clip from your colleague and fellow winner, Catalin Carico, and this video from Penn Medicine talking about the impact. I was really happy when people wrote me emails and said that uh, they could see their parents and family members. They could meet each other. And still today, I am following scientists discovering new things, and uh, I am just fascinated, just like an exciting uh, crime story. And I am so glad that it eventually helps humanity. Now, you mentioned that you didn't uh, really um, enjoy working with patients um, earlier in your career as an MD, but now something you researched, you helped create, has impacted millions. What does that feel like, knowing that you helped millions and millions of people across the world? Yeah, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I've been asked that question for three years now, and, and I still don't have a good answer. And, and I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I'm incredibly grateful that I was able to help fee- people. Th- that was my career as a phys- physician scientist. My interest has always been in developing drugs, therapies, vaccines that help people. So, you know, it's been incredible to be able to be part of this vaccine that has saved so many lives and hopefully corrected our our society. We have just a few minutes left, but um, you are not just a Nobel winner. Mm -hmm. You have won for the development of a technology that is very present in people's lives, that, that the layperson has an experience with. And I think inevitably then, because of that, you are be going to become the public face of something. And people will look to you for broader commentary about science and vaccine research. Are you comfortable in that role? Do you want to embrace that role? Does that role make you at all um, hesitant? So I, I've never been comfortable, but... Since the pandemic first hit, I've spent most evenings and weekends talking to lay audiences. And in the beginning, it was explaining what RNA is, explaining the vaccine, trying to debunk all of the nonsense on the Internet about vaccines making them magnetic or chips from Bill Gates or other crazy Mm. things. So I've been doing it for three years. I think what people have to realize is that the future of RNA is not just COVID vaccines. There's 250 clinical trials using RNA LNPs going on right now. We're moving for t- towards an in vivo gene therapy for sickle cell anemia. Wow. And why that's important is there's 300,000 people born every year, mainly in sub-Saharan Africa, with sickle, gene therapy isn't an application for them because it's a few million dollars a piece. But this in vivo therapy is a single IV injection and you're cured, Mm. and that's it. And that's easy to distribute around the world without fancy facilities or or expensive costs. Mm. I want to bring in this email from Leah. 
um, who says, did you or someone close to you get COVID-19? And if you did, how did it change your perspective about the virus, about your life in general, also about your research and its impact? So I've had friends who died of COVID-19. Just about everybody around me has had it at least once. It it wasn't going to change our approach to the vaccine and our wondering, was it necessary? It it brought in the the amount of pain and disability that every infected person gets. And, And what people need to realize is that the vaccines might not stop your next COVID mm-hmm. infection because of all the variants, but it'll greatly reduce the severity and the risk of dying. And to me, that's the most important thing. Before we go, about a minute to go here, uh, Dr. Weissman, um, Philly, do you believe Philly has a bright future as a center of scientific research? Where are our strengths and weaknesses? So o- over the past probably 10 to 15 years, Philly has put up a huge number of biotechnology businesses, buildings that house new small businesses. It's really a growing uh, thing in Philly. I just moved into a new building Hmm. that's privately owned. Penn leases the space. The rest of the building is full of new biotech companies. So we're, we're behind Cambridge and Boston but we're, we're growing very rapidly. It's an optimistic message. Thank you. Thank you. We, had, we I think we have to wrap it up now, Cherry, unfortunately. That is true. Dr. Drew Weissman, the Noel Laureate in Medicine, along with Catalin Carico. Congratulations, and thank you for being on Studio 2. Thank you. I'm coming up next. We're talking about a new docuseries that revisits the fatal events in Rittenhouse Square that drew national attention and lots of debate. We'll be right back on Studio 2. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back into Studio 2. My name is Avi wolfman And I'm Cherry Gregg. Back in July of 2018 in Philadelphia, real estate developer Sean Skellinger was fatally stabbed by Michael White. Discussion was heating up between whether it was racially motivated and then White acted in self-defense. He was later acquitted of the manslaughter charges against him, arguing that he acted in self-defense. There is now a brand new docuseries about all of this called 72 Seconds in Rittenhouse Square. It is a riveting docuseries. Mm-hmm. We watched it start to finish. And we have the filmmaker, T. Gray Hill, with us today in studio. T. Gray, welcome. Thank you for having me. So um, great job on the on the film on Paramount Plus. Um, three parts, very riveting. Got to ask you, when you started out, what questions were you hoping to get answered by doing this documentary? Not so much questions answered. It was uh, a time in the country where 
a lot of things were being questioned. And uh, you had Trump had been president for a year and a half. You had the uh, progressive prosecution movement moving around the country. Uh, tough on crime policies were being um, questioned whether to, to implement more or more harsh sentences or, or dial back. And when I saw this incident happen, I said yeah. this embodied all the things that are going on in the nation right now. And that's how I got really interested. And just recap for folks, this incident, uh, without, without sort of, I guess, giving everything away, the outline of what happened for people that don't remember uh, on this July night in 2018. Uh, at an er- intersection outside of Rittenhouse Square, uh, Michael White, who was a Uber Eats delivery uh, guy, was on his bike coming down the street. Uh, Sean Skellinger was in a was in a car with some friends. They get to they they almost clash as yep. far as uh, causing an accident. And uh, Sean gets out of the car, and um, I forgot the Uber Eats guy. There's a lot of details. Yeah. yeah. But uh, there's an Uber Eats guy that's causing a, a backup of, tra- of traffic. Sean gets out of the car to um, uh, uh, confront him. Michael thinks it's kind of aggressive, yeah. and he says it's not a big deal. You know, you you don't have to be, act like a tough guy. Sean turns his attention to Michael, and a confrontation happens. Yeah. And as a reminder for folks who don't remember, Sean Skellinger, real estate developer in Philly, he is white. Uh, Michael White is black, um, uh, significantly younger. I believe he's 20 years old at the time of the yes. incident. Yeah. yeah, and so I want to... Um, and when Michael White um, sort of um, turned himself in because there was this big it happened in Rittenhouse Square, you know, and you and in the film, you talk about the significance of Rittenhouse Square and um, why people sort of paid attention. Um, can you sort of lay that out for us um, and wrap in some of Philadelphia's history when it comes to criminal justice in a place like Rittenhouse Square? Well, Rittenhouse Square is a very, uh, considered a wealthy area. Uh, it's a beautiful area. And you usually don't hear about uh, bad things like this in Rittenhouse Square. Yeah. So the confrontation made news, obviously. It also made news because the two um, were from vastly different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, ages, and um, it just, it was all over the news. And when he turned himself in the next day, uh, um, that was unusual because Mm -hmm. we thought it was this knife-wielding man that got away. And um, when you talk about the trial and and, and, uh, when he he goes on trial, you, you have to think about the history of Philadelphia um, with with Rizzo and, and, and now, you know, we go into that in the film about the history and how it's going to impact the trial and the outcome, or will it? And uh, we look into that as well. This uh, docu-series is in many ways a triumph of access mm-hmm. because you speak with Michael White and you speak with Sean Skellinger's mother and stepfather, arguably the three people closest to this. Um, how did you do that? Was that difficult to convince the primary parties on both sides of this and people who, who clearly still have a, a lot of um, resentment around, around this Feelings, incident? Feelings, yeah. Was it hard to convince them uh, to both participate? Uh, yes. Uh, patience and perseverance. You just hmm. got to wait people out, show that they're you're concerned, as I was. I just, I just thought if um, everybody wants to talk and give their story. And um, 
The Skellingers wanted to give their story. Michael wanted to give their story. And I was just a listener. And so it came to the point where they both decided to talk. Uh, one of the things that Avi and I actually noticed about this case was um, there was so much discussion from both sides, people trying to lay out a narrative. Um, you had the Skellinger family who was willing to speak to the media. You had supporters of Michael White willing to speak to the media, and I want to play um, a clip from Skellinger's stepfather talking about the cases featured in your docu-series. One thing I can tell you is Mike White had every opportunity to go in a lot of different directions. He rode up on this scene by his own admission. He hollered at Sean because he was white, pulled the knife out. All he had to do was keep riding, and he could have gone this way, could have gone a number of different ways, but he chose to pull a knife on Sean and Sean made the fatal mistake of defending himself. So you had on one side, I mean, um, Sean Skellinger's mother was very outspoken on one side, defending her son's honor as any mother uh, would. But then you had a lot of people sort of laying that out. Tell me what that sort of, uh, you know, as you leaned into this documentary and you sort of look back at sort of the narratives, what struck you about that? Well, I wanted to recreate how this all happened. When I sat down with Linda Skellinger for two hours in a Starbucks. And at the end, in the very beginning, at the end of the conversation, I was thinking one way. Mm-hmm. The very next day at the same Starbucks for two hours, I spoke to Keir Bradford Gray. And who was at, the defense attorney. Who was the case. defense yeah. attorney. Yeah. I'm sorry. And at the end of that conversation, I was thinking another way. And I said, Wow. Uh, that's something I wanted to capture in the docuseries because there was two totally different viewpoints of what happened. And as you lay out, even when the video evidence surfaces, that itself is not sort of does not provide Mm -hmm. resolution. Keir Bradford Gray even says, I couldn't figure out why people saw different things when watching the fatal event on video. And it just goes, it speaks to the ambiguity and it speaks to people's perceptions one thing that you do a skillful job in the piece uh, of sort of laying out is the idea that Sean Skellinger's family is, I think, sympathetic to the ideas mm-hmm. of criminal justice reform. And yet they see a conflict between their beliefs and what they feel is right in this case. Did that surprise you? Yes. Um when we first interviewed Linda Skellinger, she was kind of liberal on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's apparent. It's apparent in the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she was vociferously um, uh, against uh, or for Michael White um, having to hold, you know, be accountable for what happened. Yeah. Um, and the question is in this, it's, it's, it's self-defense or murder. And um, that's how it played out. I got to ask you, and before I play, I want to play a clip from Michael White in just one second, but I got to ask you, do you think if you changed a fact in this case, things would be different? Because you had a progressive DA, as you mentioned, you had Kier Bradford Gray, the chief defender, representing Michael White in this case. You had, we were in a place of decarceration in the city. Um, You, I mean, and, and you had, I mean, do you, and you had a sympathetic defendant. Because Michael White, attractive kid, um, college, affiliated with a college. Do you think if any fact had changed, the outcome of this case would have been different? 
The only thing I can think of is if we that video started a few seconds earlier, mm-hmm. it would be more of an understanding of what actually happened. Um, of course, you can ask, um, what would be the difference if Krasner was not district attorney? Mm-hmm. That's a big question. Um, but I think just the the evidence, like people see the evidence of the video, um, it still doesn't solve anything. Yeah. And I just want to play this clip with Michael White talking about his response. He was acquitted in the manslaughter case. Here's what he had to say about the aftermath. Everybody flooding my messages and my DMs, like congratulations. But I never really felt like I won nothing. You know, I was supposed to walk out of this clean, but they still like threw something at my ankle. You know, I still got invisible shackles on me. And I want to add to that one more quote uh, from Michael White in the film. At one point, I had remorse, but all that remorse went out the window when all the disrespect came. We have less than a minute, but in the beginning, he's clearly scared and he's so clearly sorry. And by the end, he does seem to have hardened someone. It's not that he's not sorry, but that something has changed in him. Did you sense that change in, in Michael White? Yeah, Michael had a you know, as it's shown in the doc that he had a difficult life, tough life. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not in the doc that right before, um, this happened, his friend committed suicide and he was just trying to get his life together. And then this happens. And as it's shown in the doc, something happened in his family that was, was horrific. And, uh, the people, the social media started hopping on that and, and exploiting it. After he was acquitted. And yeah. that's where he things changed for him. Changed for Yeah, things changed for him. Yeah, you even uh. saw his transformation uh, throughout this. It was, it's, I have to say, we have to leave it there. Uh, T. Gray, but excellent job. Thank you so much for being on Studio Thank you for too. having me. T. Gray Hill is the producer and director of 72 Seconds in Rittenhouse Square, which is out now on Paramount+. Plus. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, 72 seconds in Rittenhouse Square. We really both enjoyed it. Uh, worth your time. Our producers for the show are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you, friends, for joining us. <laughs> 